Okay, I'm talking about the seven churches of Asia Minor. This is the church of the Laodiceans, and it will close out our study uh, on the churches of Asia Minor. So there, point number one on your outline, Laodicea, the entitled church, the entitled church. And if we look here at Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, on through the end of the chapter, it says this, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness uh, do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So I want to talk a little bit first about the history of the church. The history of the church. The city of Laodicea was founded around 250 B.C. by Antiochus II and named for his wife, Laodicea. So here's another uh, instance here where we have a monarch uh, founding a city. He named it after his wife. And Laodicea was known as a banking center, a banking center, and its production of medical salve and soft black wool. So they had a really uh, thriving fabric industry, and they uh, were known for sort of a medicinal salve that was thought to cure a multitude of different ailments. And so uh, they are also a banking center, kind of a city of commerce. And so it was a rich city. It was a very wealthy city. Uh, It was destroyed by an earthquake in A.D. 62. And the citizens declined imperial aid in the rebuilding process. Nero offered some aid. He offered, as we would think of it today, federal aid. And they said, no, we don't really need it. We can do this on our own. And so they said that we have need of nothing. And here's that reference there that Jesus is making. You'll notice that in each uh, each of the churches, when we see the Lord make a reference to them, and uh, chasten them or or even encourage them, there's always a reference to something local that's going on there that they would know about. The city's only need was water. Its only need was water. They piped hot water from the natural springs in Hierapolis to the east. They pipe in cold water from Colossae. So there there was aqueducts that would lead in The problem was that by the time the water from either supply reached Laodicea, it was altogether lukewarm. 
So they didn't have any way to keep it refrigerated on the way in. They didn't have any way to maintain the warmth of it. And so, you know, the hot water is good. Hot water is medicinal. The springs there in Hierapolis were, were known and used, and people, you know, you'd soak in them. And, uh, but by the time that got to, to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. Cold water is refreshing. But by the time it reached Laodicea, it was lukewarm. Jesus is telling them, I would that you were hot or cold, one or the other. And you can take hot or cold to mean cold spiritually toward him uh, or hot fervently toward him. Really, to be lukewarm is apathy. You're the fence sitter. You don't really care. It doesn't maybe matter as much to you. Uh, one way or the other. You could also look at it just the way we started out. Cold water is refreshing. There's a time for cold water. Lukewarm water is not very refreshing. But in Laodicea, it wasn't really, you know, it's, it's disgusting even to drink. And he says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. So there was a little bit about the city, but the problem of the church within the city. And you notice here, this is the only time that really Jesus uses this language. He says in verse 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Everywhere else he's mentioned a city. You know, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira. You know, this is a city. And it's the church in, or the church at, or the church of the city. But, but here he's referencing the people. The church of the Laodiceans. He said, yep, they're on their own program. <laughs> Everywhere else is my church in a city, but these people, it's all about them. Now, uh, here, number one on your outline under letter B there, the problem of the church, the name Laodicea means the people's rights. It means the people's rights. And I'm not talking about like rights that uh, are biblically derived, like we find in our Declaration of Independence and our Bill of Rights. I'm talking about an entitlement mentality that often comes with great wealth. There's a sort of a complacency there, but, but the church of the people's rights, it, it was the church uh, where you would typically go to and the, the mentality was, what can you do for me? The mentality is, uh, I'm here uh, not so much to serve God, but to receive something. And I know that we don't often admit that we would come to church with that mindset, but how many times... Have you heard someone say, I like this church over here because uh, I like the music. It's got the music that I want. Or I like this church over here because uh, it's got the youth group that I want. Or the, and, and so the, the focus is always here. It's always here. It's never up there where it belongs, but it's always on the self. You know, what can you do for me? The voice of the people has always been the beginning of rebellion against God. Please understand that. The voice of rebellion or the voice of the people has always been the beginning of rebellion against God. What, what is it that every communist and socialist nation, they're always the people. Well, I joke about the People's Republic of Boulder. <laughs> it's everything in, in communism and socialism is always about the people. But is it ever about the people? No, it's about the government. They use the word people in order to have a personal connection there and maybe make it a little bit more palatable, but... Uh, but the voice of the people has always been the beginning of rebellion against God. Now, I say that with communism and socialism, but look here. What does the Bible say about my heart? It says that it's deceitful. It's desperately wicked. It says that I can't know the depths 
to which I am capable of sinking. And when we're left to our own devices, the things that we want, especially the voice of the majority, the majority, and I praise God that we don't live in a straight democracy today. You hear a lot of people, oh, it's bad for our democracy. It's not a democracy at all. There are democratic elements in it, but it's a representative republic or a constitutional republic. There's a reason for that. But, but any time you get uh, a pure democracy, you're going to wind up with mob rule. Because whatever the people want, that's what they're going to vote for. That's what they're going to take for themselves. The entitlements of the people has been the excuse for socialism and communism down through the ages. And it is this self-focus that draws people away from God as it lures them toward apostasy. It's the, what do you want? And so, listen, it's the same mentality. An acorn looks nothing like an oak tree, but there's a whole oak tree packed inside that little acorn. That little thing of self, me, what do I feel like doing today? What am I looking for in a church rather than what does God say ought to be in a church? That little seed grows up into a towering tree given enough time. If it's not uprooted, and pretty soon the whim of the moment becomes the rule of your life rather than the will and word of God. But it's this self-focus that first draws people away from God. We've kind of seen that in previous lessons. But first, uh, second rather, it was entirely self-centered. It was entirely self-centered. So as, a, as sort of the, the church of what would you like? Or what do you feel you're entitled to? The result of that is it's entirely self-centered. I like what Henry Morris says here. He says, The uh, the compromising neutrality and self-centeredness of Laodicea is characteristic of great numbers of so-called evangelical churches today. And they, like the church of Laodicea, need to be called back to belief in true creationism and true biblical authority and to believe in Jesus as the true creator and the faithful witness. You notice how Jesus begins to introduce himself as creator here. It kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about uh, there, there are doctrines in the Bible uh, that must be believed and some doctrines that can be applied. And that what you believe always affects how you behave. And uh, apparently he saw fit to trace everything all the way back. He said, hey, remember, I'm your creator. And there's a reason for that. We'll take a look at it a little bit in a minute. Next on your outline, many churches today would rather not take a stand on culturally controversial issues and, or deny biblical authority for the sake of maintaining the status quo. You know, uh, sometimes we can, if, if, if the pastor, for example, is too mindful that um, maybe there's a certain person that gives a lot of money to the church and maybe they don't hold to this particular doctrine right here, the pastor in the back of his head thinking, you know, I better not preach too hard on that. They might, lo- they might leave the church because I know they don't think that way. And, well, there goes a lot of money. You know, look, when you start thinking that way, the church is in trouble. When you start, uh, it's the fear of man. When you start to think about how it's going to look for somebody else. And what happens is with the controversial issues that are always deeply divisive. Oh, we want to, you know, we want to walk on some eggshells there because I did. There might be somebody that's on this side. There might be somebody that's on that side. Well, what side is God on? You know, when did that cease to be important to us? And so uh, there's this 
kind of fence sitting, waiting for somebody else, anybody else, to make the call. Or worse, simply follow the culture. Uh, There are a number of people in, uh, quote, the spiritual community that have jumped on board with a lot of cultural issues right now that really shouldn't be. They ought, they're people, these are people who ought to know better and don't because they found it easier to deny the authority of the Bible than to uh, hurt somebody's feelings. Now, these are people and denominations that by and large left biblical teaching a long time ago, and that's why it's easy to do this. But this idea of self-centeredness and what do the people want, giving them what they want, And feeding that self-centered nature is where the problems come from. Also, number three, it completely lacked any eternal perspective. It completely lacked any eternal perspective. So letter uh, letter A there under your number three, it was completely materialistic. When you don't have an eternal perspective, your outlook can only be materialistic. Materialism is the philosophy that nothing exists beyond this temporal existence. So in other words, uh, time, space, matter, and energy is all there is. And, and, and anything after life is questionable at best. Non-existence is preferable um, after death because there's nothing to, to be accountable to after that. There's no one to be accounted for. And so we find that materialism sort of, it keeps, us, it keeps us focused right here on what we can see. An eternal perspective focuses on the things that will be later down the road in eternity after time, but also after this body dies. One day we're going to be dead. And the Bible teaches about a resurrection, and that's the life that we need to be focused on in the here and now, not living for the moment And because of all these things here, uh, lastly, there under letter B, here, once again, there's no mention of persecution. Why should there be? There's no, nobody in this church is stepping on anybody's toes. I like what, you know, one of my all-time favorite preachers, J. Frank Norris. I've read several of his sermons and uh, just a little bit about that man's history was not afraid to step on somebody's toes. And J. Frank Norris, um, He took a lot of stands that weren't popular in his day and he drew a lot of fire, in some cases quite literally, because of it. But he always, one of his laments was he said that we read in the book of Acts that when Stephen and Paul would preach, people would blaspheme. He said, gospel preaching stirs up blasphemers. He says, it was his great lament that many churches today don't have enough power to stir up the blasphemers. And that's how you know you're doing something right. There's some opposition that comes back. But a church full of fence-sitting people who is only concerned with uh, what they can personally derive out of a church service and whose pastor never worries about, you know, stepping on anybody's toes won't ever stir anybody up, for better or for worse. So let her see here the solution for the church, the solution for the church. Christ said, let me in. He said, let me in. I'm on the outside looking in. I'm knocking on the door. As a matter of fact, this is the church of the Laodiceans. 
you guys took this thing and run with it. I haven't been there in quite some time, and I'm you know, standing on the outside knocking. If you'll let me in, we'll have some fellowship, and I'll show you a really better way to do things my way. The indication here is not that it's a church full of lost people, but it's a church that could have possibly quite a few lost people in it because apparently there's no everlasting word going forth. But to the believers there, he says, let me in. And you know, there's, a, there's an indication here in, in verse 19. It says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Because I've said some hard things to you. You think you're this way over here. You think you're rich. You have need of nothing. You told, you told Nero you have need of nothing. I'm telling you, you have need of everything. You think that you have great understanding. You, you, that eyesight that you're so proud of. Why don't you let me show you what real vision is? You're very, fi- you're very proud of your fine, uh, uh, soft, black woolen products. He said, let me show you some real garments of righteousness. He says, you really, you're naked. He says, let me in. He is described as being the beginning or first cause of God's creation. First cause. Uh, sometimes we get our, our law of causality mixed up. Essentially, the law of causality states that every effect has a cause. Not that everything has a cause. If you go back far enough, you must come up with a first cause. Something existing independently of anything else had to start everything. If you don't have that, you don't have logic. Think about it. The Christian is the only one who does not have a chicken and egg problem. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Chicken. Chicken. God said, let there be chickens, and there were chickens. And God saw that the chickens were, that's in the book of Second Opinions, chapter 3. No. But, okay, but God formed the fowl of the air, uh, of the air so he formed those out of the sea. So, so we, have, we have chickens, and we have birds, and we have things like that. But if you, if you, a chicken laid the egg. Now you could be evolutionistic and go back and eventually arrive at the conclusion that a non-chicken laid an egg, and a chicken hatched out of the non-chicken's egg. Um, there are no farmers to date that will ever validate that. No one has ever seen a horse produce anything but a horse. Uh, no one has ever seen a chicken produce anything but a chicken. The rest of it is somebody's fairy tale. But um, there has to be a first cause. As the creator of all things, Jesus expected his church to realize that he took priority over everything else. Look, folks, he says, if I created it all, that means I must have existed before it. And if I existed before it, I have priority over it. You're down here worrying about your gold and silver. Like the story is told, that fellow got up to heaven, actually found a way to take it with him. You know, they say, you can't take it with you. One fellow found a way. He got up there with wheelbarrow loads of gold, and he's standing there at the gate, and Peter looks at him and said, what'd you bring in all the asphalt for? You realize that the stuff that we, the stuff that we prize highest up here, they, 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 it's, it's wallpaper, it's pavement, you walk on it. We prize the wrong things, folks. It's just the way we are. But when we forget that he is always previous, we come to depend upon other things. Oh, and by the way, 
That gets back to what I was talking about earlier with that self-focus and the, the voice of the people. When we forget that he is creator, we come to worship other things. There are people in the world today that unfortunately their only God is their government. But Jesus offered to exchange their false treasures for his treasures. Look here, we have true understanding in exchange for their eyesight. You look, you think you see. Think about how many things you hear commonplace in conversation. And then think about what the Bible says about those same things. Now, not everything's mentioned. There's not always going to be, you know, uh, discussion on the same topics. But, but you come to the conclusion very fast that frequently man has an idea that is exactly opposite of the way God wants us to look at things. That's why repentance is so necessary. Repentance means a 180 degree change of direction. And if we're looking to the opposite of what God says is true, the only way you're going to change that is with a 180 degree change of mind. But he says, I'm offering you true understanding in exchange for ISAF. I'll offer you true gold in exchange for your corruptible riches. As a matter of fact, uh, you... You folks down here, uh, you're rich. You have need of nothing but thieves break through to kill and to steal. Why don't you trust me? I have riches that I can lay up for you that neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and thieves can't break through and steal it. Today, the big thing is identity theft. They don't worry about stealing your gold and silver anymore. They worry about stealing your name. And if they've got your name and they've got other things, they have all that stuff anyway, by default. Do y'all know... As we just read earlier, that in heaven, you get a new name. You don't have to worry about anybody down here stealing it because nobody else knows what it is. And they couldn't get to it even if they did. And he says, I'll give you white garments in exchange for your expensive fig leaves. And folks, that's what it really is. Adam and Eve in the garden uh, tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. God said, nah, there's, now that you got yourself into this fix... You do need a covering, and I'm going to give you animal skins, the first shedding of blood. But what happens is they, they, here they, we have a need in our life. And the Laodiceans trying to rely apparently on their riches, on their technology, on their, their fine clothing, very materialistic. He said, uh, it's all just fig leaves, folks. You're, just, you're trying to replace my law with something of your own device. He offered them love in the form of purification. He offered them love in the form of purification. It says, um, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He said that at the end. He's using that to set up the behold, I stand at the door and knock. He just really raked them over the coals back here in these last few verses and now he's saying, uh, listen, I, I, I'm saying these things because I love you. You understand? And that's what makes me... This is a church. But it's a church that's gone terribly astray. There's no doctrinal error really mentioned here. 
We don't see any word about deeds or doctrines of Nicolaitans or those who say they are Jews and are not. As far as its doctrine went, it may have been fairly orthodox. It's just that nobody was really paying attention and internalizing. And probably the pastor had laid off the preaching of it. But he says, I'm I'm saying this because I care. We live in a world today that is awful anxious to try to label a hate crime anything that hurts somebody else's feelings. You know, there are, um, there are folks who are afraid today to say that homosexuality is a sin. But it is. And I'll tell you, I made mention of it before, but if you don't tell someone that just so that you can spare your feelings or worse, so that you can spare your image, that's not love. Allowing someone to continue in that which you know will bring the judgment of God swiftly and terribly is not love. I, I like the, there was a, an old saying that says, the Bible may hurt you with the truth, but it will never comfort you with a lie. And he's saying here, he says, you guys, your lives are full of lies. Look at all the things you're trusting in, your money, your bank accounts, you're trusting in your, your self-sufficiency. <laughs> Really? He says, all that stuff is going to go away. And I'm telling you this because I love you. And Christ offered them fellowship. Number four there, Christ offered them fellowship. Fellowship. Hmm. He says, I'm knocking on the door. All you got to do is answer it and let me in. We'll eat together. Now, the promise is royal honor in place of empty pride. These people fancied themselves to be kings in their own right. He says, I've got, I've got some real royal honor here that I'll share with you. You'll get a throne as a part of my kingdom. He said, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He said, you can have some true honor here. But again, it may not be the most honorable position here. Uh, Other folks may sit around not really recognizing, maybe even ridiculing your position, your stand, the things that you treasure, and that's perfectly okay. Let them have what they want. He said, I've got something better, and I will give you honor rather than you taking honor for yourself among these. I'll honor you forever in heaven. And that'll be pure and clean. But I want to just look briefly at the churches in summary. With the few minutes that we have remaining. The churches in summary. There was a spiritual warfare waged in each church. There was a spiritual warfare waged in each church. And that's important to remember. Even if you don't see the warfare... Some churches he talks about opposition. Uh, Some churches he does not. But the lack of opposition, outward opposition, does not indicate the lack of spiritual warfare. In Ephesus, the casualty of war was love. The casualty of war was love. 
Boy, they, could, they knew how to, how to pick out the false teachers and the people that said they were prophets and weren't. And they knew, how to, they knew how to combat incorrect doctrine. They were right and they were glad they were right. But somewhere along the way, they forgot to love. See, we're supposed to speak the truth in love. And I'll tell you, it's entirely possible to speak the truth in hate. You've got to watch that you don't become one of those people. In Smyrna, they needed encouragement. They'd been in the trenches a long time. There were enemies all around. It was a persecuted church. And they needed encouragement. That was the need. The supply lines in battlefields are extremely important. If you can cut off the supply line... You've cut off the enemy from his aid, and it's just a matter of time. Under siege. But Jesus says, I've got a, I've got a supply line that nobody can cut. You need encouragement, and I'm here to give it to you. In Pergamos, the casualty of war was sound doctrine. The casualty of war was sound doctrine. Referred to himself as the, the one with the sharp two-edged sword, the word of God, the doctrine. They've been battling and battling, and, and their casualty was doctrine. They started to lose some fights, maybe with compromise a little bit here and there, um, but the, the, there had been false teaching that had worked its way in. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans, probably that doctrine that uh, only the elite class could read and understand the Scripture. Remember, that came out of Babylon. We talked about that. But in Thyatira, the casualty of war was separation. The casualty of war was separation. There was a spiritual war being waged, but um, what, it, their separation from the world. They had allowed sin to come into the camp, adultery, fornication, and, and they'd, uh, they'd allow someone to actually, it seems, a woman, Jesus named Jezebel, to come in and teach that those things were right. And they permitted it. The casualty there was separation. In Sardis, the casualty of war was vigilance. Vigilance. Every now and then you'll hear somebody say, well, I'm so, uh, doing so well in my spiritual walk, the devil doesn't even bother to tempt me anymore. You are in a very dangerous position, my friend, if that's your attitude. Jesus says, if you don't be watchful, I'll slip up on you like a thief in the night. Twice, you remember, that city had fallen to invaders because the watch thought that their elevation of some 1,500 feet above the plain afforded them impregnable security. In Philadelphia, they needed strength. They needed strength in Philadelphia. Small church, probably a poor church. But God said, remember, he said, I'm the one who makes opportunities out of obstacles, and I'm opening a door now, and nobody can shut it. And after I've shut it, nobody else can open it. He said, you've got a little strength, but it's enough because I've, you know what? I've parted the sea. I've opened the door. And anything that you don't have and need, you'll have it when you need it. Supply lines. Smyrna and Philadelphia, the only two churches mentioned here that do not receive any criticism from the Lord. But they do have a need because there is a spiritual battle. 
In Laodicea, the casualty of war was eternal perspective. Eternal perspective. Remember, entirely materialistic, just living for now. And then let her be here. There are no problems. There are no problems for the local church not addressed in these seven letters. Now, maybe you can think of one. I sat down for 10 or 15 minutes and I really couldn't think of anything that wouldn't be categorized under one of these seven problems, under one of these seven uh, issues here. There are churches that are too focused on finding doctrinal error in others. Some people seem to almost make a habit of you know, waking up, now who can I separate from today? Bless God. There are churches that have to meet secretly due to persecution. China's full of those. North Korea's full of those. The Middle East is full of those. Tremendous power in those churches, but they've got to meet in secret. There are churches that have accepted doctrinal error. Boy, you can find that a lot. Well, uh, why do we teach this? I don't know. That's what, look, um, one of the um, commentators, I forget which one it was, one of the commentators I read in the study said, of himself, gave this testimony. I went to a seminary that they, they ignored most of Scripture. They, they just, they taught, here's what you need to know, and the rest of it we don't really have an application for, so just don't worry about it. Pretty much what he said. He came to find out later that that was an incorrect way of looking at things. But you understand what happens is that uh, a lot of denominations, they have parts of Scripture that they ignore because of the outlook of the day. They just didn't have really an application for. And so uh, one generation after the next is just taught to ignore it. And, and, and it doesn't matter. Or, or maybe just that's just the way we've always done it. There was a, there was a lady um, who called the church one day. She said, I would like to start a Bible study for neighborhood kids. I thought, that's an excellent idea. She said, now, I don't want to focus on denominationalism. I said, that's a good idea, too. She said, so how can I do this? I said, well, one thing, you need to be prepared for some opposition. Because if you're just studying the Bible and everybody's coming, pretty soon there's going to be some little kid that will raise his or her hand and say, well, you know, my church doesn't teach that. And you're going to have to be prepared to say one of two things. Either A, well, it's not that really that important. Well, then why did God put it in the Bible? Is that not the word of God then? The other thing you can say is, well, your church is doing it wrong. Oh, my goodness. You're going to, you can't just teach what the Bible says without running into some opposition here or there. And sometimes it's easy just for that error uh, to soak in. And become a part of the structure. But also there are churches that have tolerated sin in the membership. There are churches who have tolerated sin in the membership. There, especially we find this in some of the bigger kind of seeker sensitive churches. Um, where, you know, once again, <clears throat> I don't want to, you know, make waves here. I don't want to rock the boat. Well, you know, that... that, that, that that deacon, they're really faithful and they give a lot of money and I know their daughter is uh, not living right. I know that really disqualifies them from being a deacon, but you know, I don't want to say anything, don't want to rock that boat. Folks, the hand of God just, just left that church. 
Jesus gave us church discipline, and Paul instructed in church discipline for a reason. But there are also churches that have become complacent. They've become complacent. Pews are full, offerings are good. You know, I'll be honest with you, the left in America thinks that it can persecute the church into the ground. You remember what I was saying earlier about the way man looks at things, oftentimes being the exact opposite of what God sees? God says, no, I'm going to bless that persecuted church. They're going to grow, and their influence is going to shoot up. You want to kill a church? Start doing things like Germany did. Start taking people's tithe to whatever you know, Lutheran or Catholic that they put on their little registration there and, uh, and, and, and distribute that to the churches evenly along with the taxes that you take out of their income. That's how you kill a church. Becomes complacent because all of a sudden their income isn't tied to their productivity. Almost like you're paying them not to work or something. But there are churches that feel overwhelmed. There are churches that feel overwhelmed. Philadelphia churches are all over the place. You know, Lord, we go soul winning every Saturday. Nobody ever gets saved. We, you know, uh, maybe there's been no visitors come to the church in a long time. I just, I don't know what we're doing here. I don't know what you're doing here. But you've got to do something. How many of you ever felt like that? Overwhelmed. So much to do, and there's either so little time or there's so few resources. There's churches like that, sure. There are churches that are consumed by materialism. Churches that are consumed by materialism. Hey, you can have your best life now. Every day can be a Friday. How'd you like to take part in some next-level thinking? I've been to the bookstore, in case you haven't noticed, uh, just, just this last week. And I won't mention Joel Osteen's name, but that's where they're coming from. Anyway, uh, <laughs> look, we just now wrapped up those seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, seven historical, geographically located churches. There's some parallels to different points in church history. We understand that. They also are different kinds of churches that have been found since the church started. And they still exist today. Different kinds of churches with different issues that they're working through. But the Lord gave us the solution. And by the way, please notice once again that when the Lord has something against a church or even some encouragement to the church... He didn't address the Sunday school committee. He didn't address the deacon board. He addressed the pastor. Because that's who ultimately is going to get the blame. <laughs> and so, not by the people necessarily, but God. He said, I put you there. Now, there it is. Now, we're, next, next week, we start chapter 4. And chapter 4 through chapter 22, this is that section, that third section of Revelation, and that is the things which shall be hereafter. Amen. So now we've left uh, the present and going into the future.